The outbreak of mystery pneumonia cases in Wuhan began last month, and on Thursday, Chinese researchers said investigations showed a new type of coronavirus was to blame. The outbreak in Wuhan had sparked fears and comparisons with SARS after it was revealed that some cases had been linked to a seafood market that sold wild animals. However, a lot about the virus is still unknown. Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan. Ever since COVID-19 emerged more than a year and a half ago, scientists have been frantically trying to figure out where it came from. Conventional wisdom supported the spill-over theory that the virus jumped from an animal vector to humans via a live animal market in Wuhan, where many animals and humans lived in close proximity, probably too close. But then a couple of weeks ago, this happened. President Biden has ordered a review of intelligence about where the COVID-19 outbreak originated from. Dr. Anthony Fauci now says he's not sure exactly how coronavirus came to infect humans and left open the possibility that the virus could have come from a lab. The lab leak theory has re-emerged despite many ruling it out in the early stages of the pandemic as a racist conspiracy theory. So today on The Detail, what does all of this mean? Why has it popped up again all of a sudden? Were disease scientists in Wuhan modifying viruses in a special lab? And is this an unusual practice? Why was the lab leak theory written off so quickly in the beginning? And how do we actually go about establishing the truth? Dr Susie Wiles is a microbiologist at the University of Auckland. You've probably heard of her before. I began by asking her to explain what the three main theories for the origins of COVID-19 are. So the first one is that this is a spillover event um, from a coronavirus that's come probably originally from bats and then uh, to humans via another host. So this is the way that we got MERS, which is a coronavirus that came via camels. MERS, or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, is a viral respiratory illness that is caused by a coronavirus and was first identified in humans in Saudi Arabia in 2012. MERS is a zoonotic disease which means that it is transmitted between animals and people. Uh, and SARS, which they think came from civet cats. And so this is potentially another one, but that the intermediate animal hasn't yet been identified. And that's not uh, unsurprising because it can take many, many years to identify that intermediate host. Okay. So the second theory then is that it's manufactured. It's a, a, a biological weapon of some sort. Is the coronavirus a biological weapon? Now the claim is that the coronavirus is a weapon made by China and that the virus leaked out of a laboratory. There are many interesting and fascinating conspiracy theories about the coronavirus pandemic. Was the coronavirus made in a lab? This has also now brought to fore another important discussion and these, this is about bioweapons. And the third theory is that it's not manufactured, but that it, uh, it's a natural virus that perhaps came uh, out of a research lab. So there was an accidental uh, leak from a research lab. Now, this third option, that COVID-19 came from a research lab, it isn't as outlandish or as villainous a theory as it might sound. Sometimes scientists perform what are called gain-of-function experiments. This is where you take an existing virus or bacteria and edit the genetic code in a predetermined way. This changes how the virus interacts with different hosts. 
Essentially, it's an experiment asking if this specific virus were to change in this way, what would its effects be and how might we be able to treat it? I asked Susie Wiles whether this was an accepted scientific practice. It's certainly one that um, is uh, yes. <laughs> so actually, it's, I mean, it's the kind of work that we do in my lab. So uh, we are looking at um, how bacteria evolve to be more infectious. So we have an organism that we're just allowing to evolve and then see what happens naturally. Uh, we have chosen one that doesn't infect humans. Um, but there will be people who are doing those kinds of evolution experiments on bacteria and viruses that do infect humans. Uh, but there are very strict regulations around that work. Uh, in fact, for a long time, there's been a moratorium on research around, you know, for example, trying to reintroduce the type of mutations or uh, found in the 1918 influenza. Um, so, you know, trying to recreate that in the modern day to be able to understand, you know, exactly how did it cause the pandemic that it did. So there are there are those kinds of proposals and there have been uh, real... Actually, it's, it's been something that, that scientists have been arguing about for a long time. Should these experiments be done? Do the benefits of what we gain from that knowledge outweigh the potential risks for, for example, um, a breach in some way? What are the benefits that you would get from that? Well, being able to understand, you know, especially now that we have if you think about what our technology is like nowadays, you know, genome sequencing, um, all of these kinds of things, being able to understand exactly, you know, what mutations are involved in uh, whether it's becoming more infectious or becoming more deadly, that's that's really important. It helps us understand, um, I mean, it potentially gives targets for for medicines and vaccines uh, it helps us look you know for surveillance purposes so are these mutations happening out in the real world for example influenza is still you know a virus that's very much with us so if we're, if we're looking at the strains that are circulating and see those same kind of mutations pop up it can be a, a warning that the, a potentially pandemic strain is emerging so I think that from a surveillance perspective that stuff is, is it is important to know and that's the kinds of things that have now been done you know, with the um, COVID-19 virus is that scientists are taking, the, for example, the spike protein, uh, doing these experiments to naturally mutate just the spike protein and then saying, right, what do, you know, what impact do those mutations have on, on the protein? And then we can say when we see these mutations emerging in the real virus, oh, well, that might be one that becomes more infectious or whatever because we know from the lab what, what impact that has. Okay. So it's sort of almost like altering a recipe to see if changes were to emerge whether we can figure out effective treatments just in case they do emerge along those sorts of lines. Yes, um, that's certainly, yeah, uh, and sort of giving some warning. Um, and so it's really important that people understand that there are different ways of doing these kinds of experiments. So, um, as I said, people are looking at these sort of mutational experiments with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is responsible for COVID-19, but they're using just the spike protein. So they're not taking that particular virus and mutating the entire virus. They're just mutating small parts of it. So this is where... Um, you know, these kinds of experiments require oversight. You know, you have to go to ethics committees and say, right, this is what I want to do. And then those committees will say, well, on balance, actually, that's more dangerous than the information we would get. So we want you to do that experiment in a different way. You know, is there, a, for example, can you just use the protein we're interested in versus having the whole virus that is being allowed to mutate? Does All that right. make sense? That makes sense, yeah. So, like, if the lab leak theory were true, and we are not saying that it's true, 
but if it were true, it would not be evidence of some James Bond villain-level, you know, villainry that uh, China is putting this virus out into the world to kill a whole lot of people. It would not be evidence of that. This is a thing that happens in science. There is careful oversight. Yeah, and, and one of the really important things is, is that oversight good enough? Um, are the, is the, and they're not just about oversight of the research. So it could well be that people say, right, okay, actually, this research is really, really important and it's going to be done in these particular facilities. And then the question is, okay, are the procedures that govern work in those facilities, are they good enough? You know, are, are there lots of fail-safes in place in case of human error, in case of, you know, um, uh, for example, these facilities, you know, they have particular airflows. They're kind of designed so that if there's a failure, if there's, you know, if the electricity goes out or whatever, that whatever happens within that facility is kept safe. Yeah. Um, and so the question is, what are the facilities? Are they well run? Are they all up to standard? Are the people who work in there well trained? Are there um, rules around how long they can work in there so they don't get tired? Because obviously when people are tired, they're more likely to make mistakes. So those are the kinds of things that come alongside the can the work be done? Is it being done in a place where it's being done properly? The hypothesis for the lab leak theory is this. In Wuhan, there's a lab where this sort of virology work is done. It's called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And this is a few kilometres from the wet market where the first cluster of infections emerged in late 2019. Now, recently, a classified US intelligence report claims three researchers who worked at this laboratory were hospitalised with a flu-like illness in November 2019. That's just a few weeks before COVID-19 started infecting humans in the city. According to this theory, those scientists may themselves have been infected by a virus they were working on in the lab. Perhaps there weren't the best safety practices. And when they sought treatment at the hospital, the virus may have spread. Now, I mentioned earlier on that this theory was dismissed early on by health authorities... And that's true. Even in the early stages of the pandemic, before it had been investigated, the World Health Organization pretty much ruled it out. Back in February of this year, a team of scientists appointed by the WHO visited Wuhan. Here is one of them, Dr. Peter Dashak. Our focus needs to shift to those supply chains to the market, supply chains from outside China even, if you think of the coal chain hypothesis, as well as reservoirs around Southeast Asia and other places. Does the lack of a natural reservoir, this sort of smoking gun for a natural origin, uh, mean that, in your view, the lab leak should at least remain as one of the possibilities? If we can't see clear yeah. evidence for, for a natural origin, shouldn't that remain on the table? Well, you said there's no natural origin evidence. Well, it's not been found yet, that reservoir host for this group of viruses. But I just pointed out, there are many, many viruses similar, more every month they're published, so it's out there. Given that this report rules out yeah. a lab leak, isn't your credibility on that a little undermined by the fact that you've been saying that even before you came here? No. Um, what, we, what you find here is um, a, group, a very large group of experts have looked at this, they've been to the various labs around the region, um, talk to people, ask critical questions, got critical answers, and they've come to their conclusion, and I have as well. And what they say is extremely unlikely. So, which of the two main theories is more likely? Dr Gemma Geegan is an evolutionary virologist and senior lecturer at Otago University, and she's firmly of the opinion that the live animal markets are the likely cause. 
you know, as scientists, I think everyone, every scientist around the world has asked themselves the question, is it possible that this um, virus was leaked from a lab? And, you know, are we being lied to? And what does the evidence suggest? And the top virologists around the world um, have been asking themselves these questions. And that is clear from the Fauci emails that have been leaked as well. And it's important that top virologists around the world are asking these questions because that's a scientific process. And it, they might have started with that hypothesis, but looking at all the evidence, it seems that that is less and less likely. Obviously, we do not have all of the data, all of the relevant data on this. I, I, I think that's clear. However, the evidence that does exist, there's no, um, nothing to support the lab leak theory and lots and lots of evidence to support a natural origins. The lab leak theory, I mean, you know, COVID's been around for more than a year now. And I do remember in the early stages of COVID when the lab leak theory was sort of um, being discussed as a, as a possibility, um, it was dismissed pretty quickly out of, out of hand, perhaps not by virologists and scientists working behind the scenes, but certainly in the headlines of newspapers. And I think even the WHO sort of dismissed it pretty early on. Do you think that there was perhaps uh, an inadvisably premature dismissal of the lab leak theory when it came to sort of public discussion? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, it's probably been given more <laughs> airtime than I even thought it would because, again, you know, we're over a year into this pandemic and there's not any a single bit of evidence to suggest that it came from the lab. So um, I'm surprised that it's actually been talked about it again, to be honest. One of the really, really important things about working in these kinds of laboratories, and I guess any any workplace where you know there's a chance of of something bad happening, is that you don't have a culture where if somebody makes a mistake, they're frightened to tell somebody about it. That the culture needs to be mistakes can happen. That's why we have lots of controls in place to catch them, um, and that every mistake that happens, or every failure, or every breach, or whatever you want to call it, is an opportunity to learn. How can we make the system safer? So we really need a culture where people don't feel afraid to say, actually, something went wrong today. Given China's response to the COVID-19 outbreak, some people might might be dubious about whether that sort of culture exists in the Chinese scientific... Well, I don't know. That feels like a very broad way of talking about it by saying that, but do you know, you, you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, and I think that's, that's a dangerous place to go. <laughs> so um, I think that you know, it's important to talk to the people who work in these kinds of laboratories. And just because um, there might be perceptions of how a government might act, yes. that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are working on the ground uh, behave that way. And we have to remember that a lot of people in China, scientists and doctors, put their careers on the line to ensure that information about COVID-19 got to the public uh, in a timely manner, including releasing the sequence of the of the virus. So we owe them a debt of gratitude for actually how quickly many of them acted. Um, and yes, that was against uh, the policy at the time. So I think we need to separate out the people who work in facilities from our um, impressions, rightly or wrongly, of, of um, the Chinese government. Now, one recurring motif echoed particularly by journalists has been that the lab leak theory is racist, that suggesting the virus may have leaked from a laboratory reinforces 
bigoted stereotypes about China and China's scientific community. The same things have been said about the spillover theory, that criticism of the live animal markets, common in China, equate to a kind of cultural superiority on the part of Western nations, horrified at the idea that you might wander down to the market and buy a live animal to have for dinner. And to be honest, that sensitivity is perfectly understandable. We have seen very sadly, tragically during this pandemic that Asian Americans have been targeted and directly blamed for coronavirus. We should investigate the lab leak theory fully, just as we should investigate every potential for what happened here with the origin of COVID-19. But we should all be careful with our words. For example, let's stop the instances of people using the terminology of China virus. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China, that's why comes from China. When people are saying something about the Chinese government, say that. Say, we want the Chinese government to stop covering up. Don't blame the Chinese as a whole. Don't use blanket terminology like that. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge also the anger that many people have about the pandemic, but also say that it is just not appropriate to target anger against innocent people. You may be angry at a government, but that's not an excuse to hate all Asian people. I guess we have to understand that the wildlife trade in China is a huge economic um, industry. You know, it's growing and it provides a large amount of um, revenue in China. So the wildlife trade is important. Um, it's important culturally and it's an integral part of their day-to-day lives, um, which is something to remember. However, a wildlife trade markets have been the hotspot of disease emergence in the past. Um, SARS-CoV-1 emerged multiple times in an animal market. The first SARS-CoV-2 cases were associated with an animal market. When COVID-19 broke out, the Chinese closed down a lot of these wildlife farming operations, and they pushed back strongly against the idea that there were any mammalian wildlife in the market, even though there are actually photos of these in the um, WHO report. So, yeah, I think um, we do need to understand cultural differences and and be sensitive to those, but we do need to approach this from a scientific um, basis. And, you know, animals and humans, especially wildlife, we're not really supposed to be encroaching on wildlife habitat, and that's when disease emergence events are going to occur. Yeah, it kind of strikes me a little bit that, like, you know, there are valid concerns about live animal markets and there are also valid concerns about the level of transparency of information that, that the Chinese government in particular is willing to share with the world and it should be okay to say those those things, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. I think, um, I think that's fair to say. For somebody whose Uncle Jim is posting on Facebook with a link to the New York Times article saying that US investigators are looking into the lab leak theory and saying, I knew it all along, there's something fishy about this, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. What would your advice be, not necessarily to Uncle Jim, but to people who are reading that stuff and who are thinking, well, actually, you know what? Uncle Jim is a little bit, hmm, but they are, you know, I read this article and this is happening, and a year ago I was told that this definitely wasn't the outbreak source. You know, what would your advice be to people in that position? My advice is that you, you know, you really need to be thinking about why stories are appearing and whose agenda they're serving. And so there are things that are legitimate questions that are being asked, but they're being 
either asked in a way or they're being reported in a way or shared in a way that is actually serving someone else's agenda. And so there is a real you know, need at the moment for some countries to do this deflection, to deflect away on what has been an abysmal response and continues to be an abysmal response to the pandemic. And so deflecting, you know, is how you stop people asking really serious questions of you, you know, and your response right now. So I think we just need to be mindful of that, that there is very clearly agendas being served and you might be, you know, you might not realise whose agenda or what the agenda is that you're helping push. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Gemma Geegan and Susie Wiles. Ka kite anō.